that I'm here today. You know, I'm just going to briefly scroll back what it was like, what happened and what it's like now, a little bit experience, strength, and hope. I was born and raised in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, California, um, North Hollywood, right off of Colfax and Magnolia. I have a father that was in the entertainment industry. He was an actor, director, did a show called Little House on the Prairie. And, um, you know, pretty normal childhood. I have an identical twin sister, older brother. You know, no, no real drama. Uh, and I know you've heard it over and over again by a lot of people that, you know, I always felt that I, I didn't fin fit in. So I would, I would kind of go over the top with people. I remember my first drink like yesterday. I spent the night at a girlfriend's house and uh, her mom had some rum in the freezer and we thought it would be a really good idea to bring it to school with us. And we um, had a drink behind the bushes before we went into school. And I thought I had found God. It was the best experience of my life. I, I mean, it was the, I had PE class was the first period and I could do things in this gymnastic class that it just, it was, it was, uh, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved the way alcohol made me feel. So I pursued that hot and heavy. And then I went ahead and incorporated what I like to call the hors d'oeuvres in life. So uh, I wasn't strictly alcohol. I like to add in some white powder in there. And, uh, you know, after being sober a few years, I realized it really didn't, didn't matter whether it, it was liquid or powdered or, uh, deep fried or wearing a pair of slacks. I call it the four D's for me, which was drinks, drugs, donuts, and dudes. Just, we'll leave it there. Um, you know, so I lived at home till I was 18 and I was always in pursuit of the party. See, that's what was confusing for me is they told me I had a disease and, and that did just, you know, that didn't make sense to me because more of something was always the way, I thought everybody drank and used like I did. I mean, I could, I still to this day go, why would anybody stop doing something that made them feel fantastic? Because I never slowed down long enough to look at the results. So I just kept chasing it hard. You know, and I, in Los Angeles in the 80s, hello, in my early 20s, it was a nonstop party. And, um, you know, stuff happened. You know, I, I never looked at it really hard. You know, the place I was living in was arsoned in 1986. And, you know, fr friends that I had partied with wound up in, you know, pretty bad situations. I got arrested a few times, but didn't everybody, you know? Um, family was worried and concerned. My twin sister kind of had to pretend I had died. And they just didn't understand, you know? They didn't understand what alcohol and, and the other drugs were doing for me. You know, I went to medical tech school and thought I would pr pursue a career in the entertainment industry and, and, and nothing could fill that hole. And it got to a point for me that it really the substances didn't do what they used to do. 1986, as I said, the place that I was living in was arson. And I had been giving it away to you gentlemen long, long enough, you know, so I started charging you by the hour, if you catch my drift. And I wound up getting a motel room on Sepulveda Boulevard. Sepulveda Boulevard in Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley is pretty much all the motels that you could score and find uh, 
a wife for the hour or a husband for the hour. And, and that's where I wound up. And I never thought of myself as an alcoholic and an addict because I never needed it. I wanted it all the time. You know, I lived in such a fantasy world when I was out there. And I remember standing, I was walking across the street and I came to um, this light, street light, waiting for it to change. And I had rocks in my pocket, smoking cocaine, if you don't know what that is. We, we called it freebasing back then, but that was kind of my favorite. I call it um, powdered alcohol. And I had a husband for the hour and I was waiting for the light to change. And I had a weird thought and a vision. I had this sensation. Number one, I realized I hadn't spoke to my mother in about four months and we were real close. My mom was my drinking buddy for a long time. And then I remembered when I was in grammar school I remember when I was in kindergarten and I had these things that I wanted to do with my life. And that was the first time I actually saw myself where I was. I was a junkie and I was an alcoholic and I was a prostitute. And I wondered how I got here from there. Because it wasn't my plan when I was in grammar school to wind up there. And I knew my life was going to change and I was going to have nothing to do with it. I had to have nothing to do with it because that's the only way I knew how to live, you know? So I wound up, the guy that I was sharing this motel room um, called himself a periodic alcoholic, which I, I don't know, I still have a problem understanding why somebody would drink a lot and then stop. I, I still don't get that. But that's what he called himself. And he took me to a place in Van Nuys called People in Progress back in the 80s. It's kind of a homeless walk-in center where people who were on the street could go in and get help. So he wanted me to accompany him. And I thought I was doing him a favor. And I went into people in progress with him. And I had a, a pair of green slacks, just to give you a picture, a pair of green slacks, green and white matching pinstripe blouse, pumps and a purse. That's all I had to my name. And I really didn't think I had a problem. But I went into this PIP with him and some random guy handed me a note on a piece of yellow legal paper. And on what it read was, Tracy, I love you. Call me sometime. And I folded the note up and stuffed it in my back pocket when some guy fell in love, you know, because I really thought I had a tremendous ego and I thought I was all that in a bag of chips, you know. And I went back to the motel. Next day, the gentleman I was renting the room with, I call him a gentleman, I'm being really nice. My, my partner in crime is what it was. Went to, back to PIP, came back that afternoon, and he said, Tracy, you got a note from somebody yesterday. And I went, yeah, let me explain. He says, no, he wants to see you. His name is Bob Totten. And it was like a light went on. <laughs> and I went, take me to see him, because Bob Totten is my baptized godfather. And he put me in the car, and he drove me down there. And he sat on one side of the desk, and I sat on the other side of the desk. And he talked. I didn't hear a word because I was loaded. He was doing intake there. And all I remember him doing is he pushed this book in front of me. And on the cover, he wrote, let go and let God. And he put me in the back. And they had six beds back there for detox. And I remember laying in the bed that night, just like yesterday. And I had the sensation that something was holding my heart. 
and that I was going to be okay. And I wish I could tell you that was uh, enough for me to get and stay clean and sober. It wasn't because the problem was, is I woke up the next morning and I woke up and I walked out into this room and they brought a panel in and I worked that room like I worked a street in a bar. They had 12 steps on the wall that I read and I did them just while I was standing there, you know, powerless. Yeah. Came to believe, yeah, I can do that. Admit it, yeah, I made a decision right there. Step four, don't need it. Step five, don't need it. Step seven and eight, whatever. Step, I just, I just thought it was like that. And it was a room full of guys, which was my second drug of choice. And I thought I, thought I had it down. And then I went and sat with Bob, and he was doing an intake to try to find a recovery house for me to go to. Problem number one is I tried to write my own prescription for my disease. I really thought I knew what was best because I had standards, and um, which I laugh at now. I say that totally sarcastically because I was, a, I was a junkie and a prostitute, and I was being selective about the recovery house I wanted to go into. It's called the Casa de los Amigos, and it was in Pasadena, and I had a waiting list, and I just said, no, this is where I need to go. Bob went, fine, let me know when you're done. So I left and of course fell flat on my face and came crawling back in a couple weeks later. And I said, I'll go wherever you want me to go. And he sent me to a place called the Bimini, which was in downtown LA. And this is rough skid row. And there were rats in my drawers and all that. Something happened. Somebody gave me a, uh, the book came to believe. And I was reading this and gradually I started getting it. And I'll never forget at one point, I must've had a week, they brought in this speaker and this speaker was a guy by the name of Mickey Bush and he had a few years and he was from England and he said most most of you won't be here in a year he looked to your eyes something looked to your left and it was a large recovery house and that scared me because I realized I I have to do something <laughs> that my sobriety was my responsibility, my staying clean and sober was my responsibility. Nobody was going to do it for me. But of course, when I had 60 days in the recovery house, they made, they gave me a pass that day. They gave, they gave me the ability to make my own choices, which today was a huge mistake because number one, I didn't call anybody. And when I realized all of my best ideas got me loaded. So I chose to take the pass and I got on the bus and I'm heading down sunset, no desire to get loaded, walked up to this guy's door because I had just called and said, hey, I'm sober 60 days. You're not going to believe it. You're not going to believe it. I got to come by and share my recovery with you. Somebody I used to score from and drink with. Of course, when I got off the bus and walked up to his door, knocked on the door, the first words out of my mouth were, do you have any? And that, uh, all, I, all I know is it was eight o'clock that evening. And I don't know about you guys, I would drink. It, it seemed to, the pattern seemed to be like this. I would drink and use, then the clothes would vanish, then I would break out in all this bad behavior. And I'm sitting on the edge of this, edge of this bed and it's eight o'clock that night. And, and um, I took a cab over to Studio 12 because everybody in the, in the recovery house had gone to Studio 12. And I caught the last few minutes of this meeting and, and I was confronted with two choices. One gentleman came up to me and he happened to be a gentleman that I had been, forgive me if this offends you, doing 
while I was in the house because I never dated guys. I, I don't know about you. I took hostages. That's what I did. So, and somebody else came up and I was given a choice. He said, you could lie about it. He said, don't tell them, they'll never know. And I knew, I'm not virtuous, but I knew if I continued to lie about anything, I would never get this thing. Because I went from knowing that I had a problem to wanting what you people had, and that wasn't enough for me to get her stay clean and sober. Knowing that I had a problem and wanting it wasn't enough. So I was asked to leave this recovery house, but I'm not virtuous. I met a guy by the name of Morris Dreyfus. He won't mind. These people don't mind me giving lessons. And he had 10 years clean and sober at the time. And I met him at a place called the Radford Clubhouse in North Hollywood, California. And I moved in with Morris. And Morris was one of these old timers. He was a tough love kind of guy. And he, he said, here, here, here's, here's what you need to know, Tracy. Number one, you may be too smart. You're going to have to get stupid for this thing to work. He said, it's called grow up or die. He said, what needs to, and I'll never, he said, what needs to be changed is your thinking. So when you catch yourself thinking, memorize the first 164 pages of this book. Pissed me off. They told me to get a sponsor. I got four sponsors because I never had one connection. I don't know about you guys. Never had one. Never had one of anything. So I had four. I had backups for my backups. They told me to hit a meeting a day. I hit five meetings a day. Living with Morris, five meetings a day. And I kept slipping. I kept going out on Mondays and Thursdays. And I'd raise my hand as a newcomer and take a white chip and cry and sob. And Morris would sit down and go, what do you want? And I'd go, I want to be happy. He'd go, I can't help you there. What do you want? And I wanted to stay sober. And he'd put that book in front of me again and sent me upstairs with a notebook to do a four step. You know, between the 60 day slip and my sobriety day, it was, it was a nightmare. I was all mad. I, um, I would pray. I would read a devotion at night and read it in the morning. There are pages in this book that I read every night and every morning. And somehow I had gone out again. I was, you know, somewhere in the San Fernando Valley in a motel room. And I called my mom. My mom was the last resource. Like I said, my sister had to pretend I had died. My family, I wasn't allowed anywhere on anybody's property. They were done with me but I could always call my mom. And I called my mom to pick me up at a bus stop and she picked me up and she'd never been so upset she couldn't speak. You know it's bad when they can't speak and they're not talking to you. This is when she was yelling at me, she was talking. And we drove back to the, her house, she had remarried and I heard her husband arguing in the other room. And I did what I did, I came in, I'd been up for a week or so doing what I do. It'll be okay, mom, it'll be okay. You know, making the calls that I had to do, get a little shower, get a little food in me, you know. And um, he stormed in the door and he put a finger in my chest and he said, I, pardon my language, I'm going to use a word now, forgive me, okay? 
He said, I'm tired of your shit and I'm tired of what you're doing to my wife. I want you gone now. And I remember sitting on the edge of that bed and I sobered up. Stuff that I had heard at meetings over and over and over again. One of them was our primary purpose is to help another alcoholic recover. No, what I heard, that's what I heard, was my primary purpose to grow spiritually and look good and get you guys to, no, my primary purpose is to stay sober. And I realized I'd been expecting everybody to do it for me. I'd been expecting the rooms to keep me sober. I'd been expecting Morris to keep me sober. I expect by all of this, that I would be launched into some kind of sober place where I'd never have to deal with the obsession again. And I'd go, yeah, like I couldn't figure out why I wanted to drink any to go, because you're an alcoholic. It also was read at every meeting that we stood turning for. And I remember hitting a, a 7 a.m. meeting at Unit A, 9 a.m. at Channel or Lodge, picked up the phone. Now I had been reading and praying for God to help keep my, my mind on what is right in front of me, come to find out this disease I have does not give a rip how I feel. I care how I feel because the other thing I found out in this book is that I'm selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed. The only person I wanna think about when I'm drinking is me. And it also says I can't reduce my self-centeredness by wishing or trying on my own power. I tried and I couldn't. And I was atheist agnostic when I came here. I had clear enough powerless over the substance in my life unmanaged. Came to believe in a power greater than me that would restore me to sanity. And I knew if I wanted to drink, you could not stop me. An army of old timers could not stop me because I would smile and nod and I was okay when I was in meetings and surrounded by other people. But when I was left alone, I did what I did. And I remember like yesterday, I was driving over this canyon, hit 7 a.m., 9 a.m. meeting, and I'm heading over Crescent Heights because I called a connection, party buddy. I'm heading over. And when I hit sunset in Crescent Heights and I'm staring at the steering wheel of his car, I realized if I made a right-hand turn and went on to this person's house, I would be raising my hand as a newcomer for the rest of my life. That there was no member of the fellowship sitting next to me to, to turn the wheel for me. We didn't have cell phones. That I had to turn the wheel. And I remember turning the wheel of this car around, making a U-turn to go back. And I had never done that before. And I, a rage reared up in me unlike anything I have ever experienced before or since. And it was, I don't know if you've ever been so mad that you're shaking and you got a lump in your throat and your eyes are watering and you got something's going to go that it had kicked in. And I have never gone to drink and not drank. And all the way over this canyon, I am shaking like a leaf, screaming at the top of my lungs. God help me in one breath and the next breath, pardon my language, I'm going all over the, all the way back over this canyon. Fuck you, all the way. And I pulled into a tail end of a meeting at Studio 12. And I stormed in those rooms. And uh, they asked if there were any burning desires and I raised my hand and I chewed everybody out in that meeting. I said, I've been doing everything you people told me to do. And I came this close to getting high and I was this close and old timers 
the old timers giggled, pissed me off. And I thank you for effing letting me share. And I sat down and folded my arms and listened. Because the one thing Morris taught me is that Tracy, when there's a meeting going on, your job is to come in, sit down, listen, give your attention, especially when the readings are being read. Listen. And I listened. And then somebody shared and somebody else shared. And we stood up and we held hands and we did the Lord's Prayer. At the end of that meeting, I walked out into this courtyard and I looked at this orange tree and I went, 20 minutes ago, I had to drink. And I cussed and I threw some chairs and it wasn't pretty or glamorous. And at that moment, it passed. And I knew then I was going to stay sober the rest of my life. I do it one day at a time. But I knew if I could survive that, because it was read at every meeting, we stood at the turning point. We asked us protection and care with complete abandon. And this is what we did. So that was the beginning. And I remember driving home after that going, that's what you guys had been talking about. That's what you guys were talking about. Because without that first abstinence step, I kept thinking as a result of doing all of this, the steps and the, and the spot, all of that, I would be launched into a sober place. For this alcoholic, it was a combo platter. And nobody was going to smack it out of my hand. And then there was hope. I got an opportunity to grow up here. And that's why the reading, you know, I read chapter three every morning, those two pages. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we're real alcoholics. No person likes to think he's bodily and mentally different from us. Therefore, it's not surprising that our drink went on and on. Those pages every night, every morning. Then I went in and read, you know, being convinced we're at step three in chapter five that described me, that I'm a tornado roaring my way through the lives of others. I'm the actor who wants to control the whole show. I still do. And if people would do as I wished, especially when I got a little sober time under my belt, I actually think I know stuff. That's scary. I, I'm arrogant. I have to surrender to God every day and do the best that I can with what he puts in front of me to do. I cannot fix me. I tried to get other people to fix me. And then I tried to fix me. And it tells me in that book, the whole purpose of this is to put, plug me into a reliance upon God that will solve all of my problems. And if you're a new man, please don't leave before the miracle. Because I started nurturing that. I started really nurturing that. I went in and I did the fourth. Then I did the fifth. Then I did the sixth and the seventh. Then I sat down and made amends. And luckily we have a tenth, continue to take personal inventory when we're wrong, probably admit it. These principles in my life today. If I step on somebody's toes or think I step on their toes, I go back and try to make peace. When I retire at night, those two pages in the big book, what I did in those first 90 days, I created these habits. Number one, I don't drink no matter what. By the grace of God, the obsession's been gone a long time. Still, the only time I get angry and upset is you're not doing what I think you should do. So, <laughs> 
whether it's my husband, I have a husband now, I have a daughter now who's 20. I, when they're not doing what I think is best and, and back and sell, you know? My first five years of sobriety, I'm just kind of jumping here. You know, I was almost two years where my, 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 I got to be of service and um, take care of my dad when he died of cancer. And I got to be a service, you know, and I realized that number one, that the world does not revolve around me. It doesn't revolve around me. I, I, use, I use this book a lot because it tells me real clear on top of page, I think 25, that my very life is an ex-problem drinker and upon my constant thought of others and how I can help meet their needs. And that's why meetings to me are magical because I can go in and sit at a table, put my feet under any room, anywhere on the planet, been to meetings all over, all over from there. I live in Virginia now, moved to Modesto. So there's a start at a meeting in Jamaica. doesn't matter. We put our feet under that table and we're with survivors of the Titanic. <laughs> it's the only place where total strangers can get together to reminisce and remember what it was like and how I've been saved, you know, and how uh, the longer I'm around here, the smaller I get and the bigger God gets. And I'm so thankful I don't have to know everything. My job is to play nice with the other kids. Play nice with the other kids, share my toys, like I learned in kindergarten. If I don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. I even go further and say, if I don't have anything nice to think, work on that. You know? And I cultivate an attitude of gratitude in my life today. You know, and been blessed, you know, clean and sober four years, living in the San Fernando Valley, got married, moved to Modesto, got, got in the rooms there. I have a 20-year-old daughter today that got to homeschool, got to relocate out here to Virginia. You'd have told me that. You know, we do this one day at a time, one day at a time. But when I read step three, you know, and, and the first three words there for me was made a decision. I had to make a decision. And um, I'm really grateful that I did. You know, and I'm happy I got an opportunity to be weaned. <laughs> the weaning process. You think it's going to be pretty? No. No, no. It's not comfy all the time. And I, and I love the magic in the rooms. The last thing I'll say is because we can all come to a room and we sit down. And if we do it correctly and we listen to the readings, we start with a prayer, don't we? Start with a prayer. We listen to readings and we listen to somebody else. And then we end with a prayer. And I felt comfortable in the meeting. I think, number one, because I didn't think about me for an hour. What a concept. And I expand that out to my whole day. It taught me how to live life one hour at a time, how to get along with you, how to get along with you, how not to judge you, how not to criticize you. And I got to learn that in the rooms, in, in our increments. To see how, how little I thought of me and how little I thought of you, because either I was, you know, the um, egomaniac with an inferiority complex. I would judge my insides by other people's outsides. Being female, it was always what my hair was doing or what my thighs were doing. It's just horrible. 
and I can't fix it. I had to lay it down. I had to lay it down and give it to God. And I'm not perfect by any shot. But these um, principles that I that I learned through Alcoholics Anonymous that that play into my life and my relationships with other people today. I am I'm a wife now. I'm not the 20 year old that came in here. Um, and it's not about me. And I'm a mom. That's the toughest thing on the planet if you have kids. How do you raise a teenager? Text me. <laughs> but I don't have to do it perfectly, man. I shoot for perfect ideals, but I know that, that of myself, I will blow it. And it's neat because I say, God, what do you want me to do? What do you, you gave me a gift, what do you want me to do? He said, it's real easy, Tracy. I cut you a lot of slack. I love you crazy. He loves me crazy. He said, your job is to cut your brothers and sisters out there some slack. And it's going to be easy to do it when they're being nice. You cut them some slack. You know, everybody's got good hair days and bad hair days and says stuff that they don't mean. You know, I want to live peace with my fellow man today. You know, so let me, let me see this time. You know, boy, last little, last little sidebar. If you're new, it took me about a year, I'm just saying, roughly a year um, to detox. I mean, the, what I was thinking in my, when I first got clean and sober and the way I thought after a year, it was great. It took about two years for my family to even trust me again. You know, um, we're very close now. I moved to Virginia because my sister lives here. Had the opportunity to move my mom into my home and um, I got to take care of her until she went home uh, last August. I got to take care of her. And this is the woman who bailed me out of jail. This is the people who I, she used to wait that I'd be found finding a dumpster somewhere. You know, I got to uh, own and operate a couple of businesses, you know, and I'm, no matter what goes on, I'm at peace. I've been flush, really flush. And I've been making $5 an hour cleaning brick. Who cares? Nothing's coming with me when I leave. That I know. That I know. So I try to be of maximum service to those out there that are struggling and try to live live this message, you know, of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, but I'll tell you, he said the answers are in the book. That's the one thing he said over and over again. The answers are in the book, you know. So I think that's enough out of me. I think I've been sharing long enough. Thank you for letting me be a service. Oh, thank you, Tracy. That was absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. God bless you. Um, okay, so we will then move on to our second speaker, uh, Joe, who's come along to share with us. Uh, Joe, you are unmuted. Take it away, Joe. Uh, hi, guys. Uh, I'm really happy to participate in this uh, seance that we have going on here. And uh, Tracy, once again, <clears throat> you've convinced me what a weenie I am. Uh, I've had it way, way, way too easy. God, uh, I, uh, uh, I'm Joe Johnson. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, if the use of uh, last name seems like a uh, 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 violation of the uh, anonymity rules, it isn't. It's my anonymity, and I never really had a chance at it 
for a variety of reasons I won't bore you with. And that my first home group, uh, the old timers that I ran to for uh, to help and listen to, uh, were indeed old timers, and a lot of them use their old names. I got their uh, both names, and I. I uh, grabbed a hold of that, and in a way, I'm glad I did, because uh, it's uh, uh, directly attributable to uh, helping, uh, big-time help to about half a dozen people that I ended up sponsoring uh, when they heard, of, you know, heard about it. If some goofball like me can be having as much fun as I seem to be having in life, then alcoholism doesn't have to be the end. And uh, like most of us, uh, uh, that was my belief when I opened the doors, you know, tearfully to come into uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I was born and raised in Southern California, greater LA, and uh, went to school here, learned to drink here, uh, did a lot of drinking here. <laughs> And uh, at age just before my 41st birthday, uh, I was the uh, widowed father of three teenage kids uh, on uh, the uh, edge of a divorce that was in process. I had just been declared an alcoholic and I was locked up in a nut house. Other than that, life was going along rather well. And uh, it just, it's crazy, I think, back on it. And so, like I think so many of us, I, I was trying to analyze, why me? Why all my friends? I had drinking friends that were with me, you know, virtually every step of the way. Of the way, and I kept thinking and thinking and so forth. And finally, when I got through with my huge analysis, I realized, oh, I know what it was. I liked the effect of alcohol. It was no more complicated than that. I'd had a nice upbringing. Uh, upbringing. Uh, I had uh, a lot of great parents, uh, parental. Uh, guidance in, in many ways and uh, no mistreatment or anything. One other sibling who, by the way, never did make first string. God, he was trying. He was trying, but he never quite got screwed up enough. But anyway, we, uh, I, I can, like you said, Tracy, I remember my first drink. And uh, I'm going to do it, but I can personalize it because you're so familiar. You and I are uh, bounced around the same areas and, and to a large extent. I was from the San Gabriel Valley and we hated the San Fernando Valley and I'm sure that was equal. It just, uh, uh, we'd been around a long time and the uh, San Fernando Valley was merely a result of removing orange trees uh, from a popular song during World War II. Uh, or when I was also drinking, by the way, and, and I was still in high school, and I just missed uh, the service by, uh, well, if I'd have been uh, two years older, I'd have, I would have been suited up and been out there with the guys, but I got out just before. But anyway, my first drink was uh, uh, in high school. I was 14. I was a sophomore. 
and uh, we, uh, uh, <laughs> one of the guys had his own car. He was a poor little rich boy from San Marino, and uh, he had his own car, which most of us didn't have, being from Alhambra, uh, which is a, uh, a suburb of LA, probably from City Hall to City Hall is maybe 10 miles as the crow flies from LA to Alhambra. And then uh, Pasadena is like uh, maybe three, four miles north of there. So that's the general area I was raised in. So we, uh, anyway, we had a car and we had uh, a bottle of booze of some, I don't have any idea what it was, but it was, it was liquor, it wasn't beer. We didn't start with beer, we were going, I mean, we jumped right into the middle. And we drove up uh, what's now called Highway 39 through Azusa. A lot of people own getaway, quote, mountain homes uh, up in that area, because you could get there from downtown LA in 30 minutes, and you were in the mountains, the foothills that you see when you, uh, all fly into LAX, and uh, that that isn't as popular these days. You gotta go a lot further to have that much uh, uh, non well to get what we got there. So we were on the on the car in the car, the uh, poor little rich boy's car, and it was a 1941. Ford uh, Club Coupe. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news was it was brand new. That's how long ago it was. It was still brand new. One of the last cars built before they quit building cars uh, here, uh, like very soon after Pearl Harbor. And it all went to military vehicles and there were no civilian cars manufactured after uh, uh, probably at the very latest uh, mid-1942. So anyway, here we are. I'm sitting in the back. I'm the youngest of the group. And you're kind of buried in a hole. You can't even see back there. And so we, we can't make it clear to the cabin without stopping for a drink. So we pulled to the side of the road up there, mountain road out in the middle of nowhere, above Azusa, if you will. And uh, we, uh, uh, the bottle, or the, the paper bag and the bottle came to me and last in the back uh, seat. And, and I go, oh, wow, here we go. So I take a big slug of whatever it was and oh my God, it just about killed me. You know, it burned in my throat on the way down. It was trying to fight his way back up and I was trying to fight to keep it down. And people, and I'm going, God, man, people call this fun? Jesus, it just about killed me. Well, that feeling lasted for about, what would you guess, 90 seconds. And then the magic set in. Then the magic set in. I felt whatever it was that I had never felt before, uh, that I recalled anyway, and uh, life was suddenly good. I was taller, I was better, I was better in every single way. And I could hardly wait to get, get my hands back on that bottle. 
And to the best of my knowledge, I don't recall ever turning down, I maybe did, but I did not recall ever turning down a drink uh, until I crashed and burned uh, years later. Uh, well, 1969 is my uh, birthday, uh, a birthday, February 10th, 1969. But anyway, it was, uh, and so I, I had gotten into enough trouble. People tolerated me in the job. There was a lot more drinking in those days. Like at, at noon, you went out for drinks. It was kind of that simple. You came back and no matter how shit-faced you were, you did your job. And as long as you didn't get in big trouble, uh, there was no big thing there. Well, it was getting to the point where I hadn't gotten in any big trouble, but I'd gotten uh, some uh, ill attention, if you will, from, uh, at work, where I was dearly loved, and there were people running interference for me, like, hey, it's part of his job, and he does it very well. <laughs> let, let him go. I was in marketing and sales, and, uh, and, uh, and when all of this actually came to a head, I was working for uh, a Hughes Aircraft Company, and I was... Uh, uh, selling military products to both uh, U.S. and friendly foreign military people. So I started traveling international and uh, internationally, and I became an international lush. Uh, a lot of you aren't old enough to remember. Uh, I thought I was a combination between Dean Martin and Phil Harris, and uh, you'd have to, oh, maybe W.C., Wells, is that, I can't even think of that anymore. But anyway, yeah, I was just the well-known drunk and uh, a lot of fun. I wasn't a mean guy or anything like that. As a matter of fact, I kind of backed off because I knew I couldn't handle myself if there was any kind of bad action going on. So I didn't get in a lot of trouble there, although I did a lot of things that I thought were pretty damn funny, but the rest of the world uh, wasn't laughing with me. And more and more of that went back. And I never got a, uh, it'd be interesting to know since we got an international group and later on, uh, when I get through blathering here, maybe you can tell me what uh, uh, getting arrested or even stopped for whatever you call it in your country. Uh, here in Southern California, way back in those days, it was called a, uh, we nicknamed it a deuce, a 502, which was part of the, uh, criminal code, vehicle code, that stood for driving a car drunk, which I did plenty of, but I never got caught. I sometimes think maybe I was the inventor or co-inventor of the stealth uh, concept, because I just never, never got caught. A lot of my drinking was done uh, uh, in, a, in the neighborhood. And so I was always just crawl home and the cops didn't mind that. It was uh, behind the wheel that they got to you. But I'd had a couple of incidents one time, and in the one time the cars, they they uh, I had had a whole snoop full, and I'd left a bunch of my customers off, and I'd been entertaining. And of course, entertaining to me, apparently, as I then defined it, was. Uh, 
uh, I'm going to buy you an expensive dinner and you can watch me get drunk. And uh, you can join me if you choose, uh, which frequently was the case because I didn't want, uh, I, I didn't trust people who didn't drink, literally. I just didn't trust them. They, they, they were not trustworthy people in my mind. So I kind of avoided them. And so I hung out with a bunch of my own kind. And we were running around in suits and ties. And by the way, there weren't any drugs involved at that time. If they were, they were very little. They were in East L.A. down in the barrio. And uh, entertainers and musicians and actors and so forth. They had act. They they got wise early, but the rest of us had to had to work with booze alone, and that was satisfactory for me. I would have never. Uh, I had no interest in, uh, in drugs. Didn't know anything about them. The whole idea scared the hell out of me. Still does, by the way. So I don't even like to take aspirin, let alone anything I don't know what it is. So, so that wasn't uh, a factor in my situation. But anyway, I, uh, life progressed as did my alcoholism, which I had no clue. I couldn't even pronounce the word. And uh, anyway, it just was a big, big part of my life. I can remember one time my dad who worked for the uh, Los Angeles Times, uh, frequently got uh, freebie tickets to the uh, January 1st Rose Bowl games. And so he came by uh, my house. We lived a few miles apart. And uh, God, I worried, worried, worried. And in the 15 minutes, it would have taken him to drive over there because I was going to tell him I'm too sick to go. I've got the flu or something. And he says, you know, my dad was a pull all uh, pretty all new guy. He says, "Yeah, you got the you got the flu. You got a case of the of the flu." Uh -huh. I, he says, "I drank a whole case of flu one time." And by the way, he wasn't an alky. He 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 drank a lot, but he uh, uh, anyway he uh, and he he they got to the point where they worried about me. They, my mom and dad, they both drank. I don't think that either one of them would qualify as alcoholics, but uh, but they uh, they certainly drank their share. And my mom, my mom used to have. She said it was a bridge club. Well, it was uh, it was Al-Anon when Al-Anon had first been invented in the uh, in the late thirties, and. Uh, uh, yeah, these women would come over and discuss stuff, and I was shooed away. Who the hell wanted to be around a bunch of women playing bridge? And but that's years later I found out that's what that's what that was all about. And uh, in spite of that, I'm I'm not sure that they qualified to be alcoholic, but it it didn't make any difference. Uh, I I have the confirmed opinion and and uh, unch unchanging. Uh, opinion I drank because I liked the effect of alcohol. It was no more, uh, no more uh, clarification required. I used to fly. Uh, I'd always like to take a an engineer with me on on these trips I would go on around the world, and <laughs> I'd always like to like to pick one that first of all I liked and B, that wasn't a drinker because there was a period of time where they literally rationed booze on the airplanes. Uh, 
there were, and I can remember 1966, it was a period of time where uh, you, you uh, even though you were saying tourists, you had to buy your drinks uh, and, uh, and they, you were limited to two. And then you'd get some guy who's a, probably a genius for God's sake and, and literally, but not in terms of people and understanding and so forth. And the, the stewardess would come up and say, what could I get you to drink? And then he'd turn to me and say, what was that? You were, you know, like, like he'd blow our cover. And I go, Jesus, how can you be so smart yet so dumb? Anyway, I would, we would fake our way through that. I'd get his, my two drinks, his two drinks, and then maybe I could, uh, you know, talk her out of two more or something like that. But I look back and I was always doing stuff like that. Uh, whatever they gave me wasn't enough. It just never was enough. I never put that together with the fact that I had a drinking problem until I finally did. And, uh, and it was kind of tough. It was kind of tough when I began to worry about it and say, and people were saying, Joe, we're not suggesting that you uh, quit drinking. And I went, whew, thank God for that. Uh, but can't you just throttle back? Just don't drink as much. And uh, the longer that went on, and that went on for, well, actually in my case, only a couple of years. And uh, in, in it, all it did was anger me, of course. Uh, I maybe wrote those people off for a while or maybe forever, whatever, it didn't matter. But that was what I was doing. And then uh, later on, I was uh, uh, towards the end. Actually, what, I went, what a lot of people describe as having gone through over a number of years, I went through in a few months. Uh, I don't know whether I was faster or cared less, I, 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 dumber, that's for damn sure. And, uh, but that was the way it was. It kind of snuck up on me and I'd hear things about, we'd sit around on Sunday morning nursing, uh, uh, you know, mimosas and screwdrivers and morning acceptable drinks. And, uh, uh, nursing our way back from hangovers that started probably as early as Friday. Oh, and then we got better at it. Sometimes it'd be Thursday we'd start uh, start the routine. And it was just, I was drinking more and more. It didn't really matter what. People say, what was your favorite drink? And, it, and uh, I, my answer is alcohol. <laughs> In any form, in any form, certain things I liked. I, I even gave up martinis. Uh, a martini, a 10 to 1 martini, was a uh, uh, where you opened a bottle of uh, uh, vermouth 10 feet away for 10 seconds and uh, hoped that the fumes reached the, the actual drink. That was a 10 to 1 martini. So, uh, and I loved those, but pretty, they knocked me on my ass. And of course, that's why I loved them. And so the only place I would drink those anymore was when I was on an airplane during that period that they, uh, they had it quarantined. And uh, because they, they just 
totally knocked me out and I was really unresponsible. So never ended up getting, I had the cops, the local cops in Fullerton where I lived most of my life as an adult. And uh, they found me drunk in the car where I'd been doing my entertaining. And I had just finished uh, and I uh, prided myself in always being the last one out of the bar. I think all of my uh, business suits had uh, lapels stretched from them, pulling me out the door, slamming it shut, running for their car, and leaving me there in the parking lot. And that's what had happened. So I dropped my guests off. They were nearby in a motel. I started home, and I and the car crapped out. And it was a company car, a very a straight Jane. Uh, Chevy didn't even have a radio. Do you, do you ever remember back far enough where they didn't even have a radio in the car? And uh, all of a sudden, I, I lost it. And I'm looking around, and I might as well have been in the cockpit of a 747. It was just too much, too much. Minimum buttons and all of that. And, and uh, the police pulled up behind me. Well, I wasn't doing anything wrong, except I was, I had crapped out in a, in a kind of a dangerous place to be stopped because people didn't have good visibility there. The cops pulled up and I'm going, and it's a company car and I'm, I'm new to the company and I'm, oh God, here it goes. And so the guy uh, says, what's wrong? And I said, well, my car flamed out. I, I don't know what's the matter here. And I just, it was cold part of the year in California. So the windows were all up and you can imagine the fumes that were trapped in here from the four guys I'd let out plus mine. And uh, so I cracked the window to answer it. And then he wanted my driver's license and blah, blah. So I go, oh, shit. So anyway, I hand him that, and, and then I tell him it's a company car. He says, would you get out of the car? He's very, very polite, very nice uh, Fullerton policeman. And, uh, and as I got out, you know, I saw him kind of rocked by the fumes. And, and then out came that question, sir, have you been drinking? And uh, I went, you know, your mind moved in nanoseconds, uh, alcoholic under, uh, you know, that kind of uh, uh, interrogation. And I thought that, that I had enough brain power left at the moment that I thought the two beer routine ain't gonna fly. God knows I'd blow probably a seven five or something. So I just, I exaggerated it. I call it the Joe Johnson. Uh, throw your mercy, your, uh, mercy. <laughs> have the court throw their mercy on you. And so I, I exaggerated. I literally exaggerated now, being as drunk as I was, but I was getting drunker by the minute because I had it had been minutes before I'd finished the last four that I had them rack up for me. And so I, uh, I uh, did, did this and they uh, said, well, look, uh, Mr. Johnson, you live only about three miles from here. And I thought, whoa, that's good news. I, I, I wasn't quite sure about that. And, uh, and that's helpful, helpful information. And he says, if we drive slowly enough, 
do you think you can follow us if we drive you home and you follow us? And I went, yeah, yeah, I think I can do that. And I did. And so there, I should, you know, today they, they wouldn't have even, there'd have been no trial or nothing. They just shot me against the wall, for God's sake. And uh, anyway, so none of that happened to me. But finally, finally, I, I'm going to have to take two, two things to get all of this out. But anyway, I, uh, it was not too long after that, that uh, my boss, who happened to be my best friend, as well said joe uh, i gotta have you talk to a counselor that we haven't we'd heard about these people we called them the booze patrol and uh i didn't know what they were doing but they had to do with people who drank too much and so i had to go to another building i was not familiar with or walk down this hall that seemingly went through it seemed like it was a hundred miles long it was like a movie scene like the finish of a movie or something and then here's a little old joe from alhambra california walking down this lonely hall thinking what the hell's gonna happen and so i get down there and a neat guy meets me and we get to talking, talk for a while, and and uh, so finally, uh, he said, "I I said, well, when are you gonna, when are you gonna test me?" And he says, "What?" And I says, "Well, when are you gonna give me my test?" Uh, he says, "What do you mean a test?" I said, "Well, you know, draw blood or or heartbeat or uh, anal probe or uh, shit. I don't know what. How do you test?" And uh, the guy says, well, I don't have one. But he says, I've kind of come up with one now that you missed. I say, whoa, what's that? And he says, go home tonight and have two drinks. Only two. Not, not, and they got to be measured drinks, and you got an ounce and a half jigger. That's what they were. And uh, I said, oh, oh no, I got, I've been in Sweden. I got a two-ounce jigger that I bought over there that I used. Okay, I'll give you. I'll give you a break there. You can go for the two ounce. You know, he had it just like a fish. So I went home and could hardly wait to. Uh, I could hardly wait to to get uh, get home and start the test. So uh, I did, and my wife said, "God, you're really fast tonight." She was pissed and had been for a number of months, and, and uh, I said, "Yeah, I'm taking a test." Oh. oh. Anyway, he said, you do that, you do that for 60 days. No cheating, no skipping today and, and, and taking uh, today's tomorrow or anything like that. Perfectly honest, two maximum, okay. And so I did, I went home and I threw the ice in and I poured the bourbon, I guess it was my thing at that point. Drank that, got another one down, put everything away. The evening went fine and so forth. Did that the next day. And the third day, I had a bad day at work. You know, something came down. I Very upsetting, whatever it was. Have no idea and so forth. So I, you know, I came home and I literally thought, I wasn't lying. I was just wrong. That uh, two days, 60 days, what the hell's the difference? I went two days without a drink. So I can't be an alcoholic, for God's sake. And uh, so that was the end of that. And uh, that was uh, the year Nixon 
was Richard Nixon was uh, inaugurated uh, during that phase, during my test phase, shall we call it. And I, uh, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I crashed and burned and, and, and forgot all about it and stayed drunk. And then finally, finally it hit me and I was ready to take the advice. And I didn't know anything about AA, nothing. All I, I had my own concept, you know, bunch of people sitting around with a paper bag over their head with eye holes cut out, uh, daring each other to drink or so. I, I didn't know what the hell it was. But I went and I had uh, an instant love affair. I walked in the door of this place when, and I thought, I, I don't know why. Luck, good luck, blessing. And so I've had a love affair with them and it was tough as hell for me because I was going through a divorce and my life since uh, I've been sober has presented me with far more serious problems than I ever experienced when I was drinking. And the only way I was able to get through this was because of what you people taught me and tried to teach me and tried and tried. But since the day that swinging door opened into, uh, into my first AA meeting, it hasn't been necessary for me to take a drink. And that, that is truly a miracle. I, God knows I'm not taking credit for it. That credit belongs to us collectively and Bill and Bob particularly and God and the fact that there is something like uh, uh, AA, not something like AA, there is AA and it rules my life. And I, uh, and I, I've gone through, as I repeat, hell, I've gone through two divorces, uh, two lengthy periods of, uh, of uh, uh, unemployment uh, and a variety of other bad, bad things that would have chased me right to the bottom. And these days, something will come up and I can see, uh-oh, this is going to be a big one uh, emotionally on me. And, uh, but... Uh, the answer, the, the answer being a drink is the furthest thing from my mind. That's when I triple up on my meetings, when I know I'm going to need them. Uh, because you, uh, you guys have saved my life, and it hasn't been necessary. And hell, I've just started. It went on and on. And, and uh, uh, I thank you for being here. I thank whomever worked so hard to put this whole meeting together and uh, I love you guys I love the program and I love sobriety thank you okay now that that's over I'll tell you the real story <laughs> just kidding take it away Dan or Pax whatever whomever <laughs> thank you Joe that was amazing man thank you so much um, okay, we're just going to slow the meeting down. Uh, usually what we try to do is to allow anybody with less than 90 days, any newcomers who would like to come back and ask a few questions to either of our speakers or uh, just come back and share with them uh, whatever you, you'd like to share. Uh, so any new, anybody with less than 90 days or less, just please raise your hand, maybe in the participant section or to the screen. 
I will try to find you on the screen if you raise to the camera, use your hand to the camera, but um, preferably if you can raise your hands in the participant section, that'd be great. Just unmute uh, Joe as well.